in, in this teaching series that, that, we, that we did on, on salvation, I, I began to explore the language of our faith that communicates what we believe as Christians. That's, that's what we were doing. We were saying, well, what, are the, what is the language that, Christian use, that Christians use to, to explain our faith? And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at some doctrines, Christian doctrines, which, which are Christian teachings. It's like taking the scripture and saying, how do we, how do we articulate this? So we've been looking at these teachings, what they mean, and, and, and we've been looking at some rather big words. And we started with the word justification. What does justification mean? Then we moved on to talk about sanctification. And last week we ended by looking at the word glorification. The doctrine of glorification. Glorification is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. And it is the final step in our salvation. That is when we achieve our divinely appointed destiny and we share in God's glory. And the way we share in the glory of God is through our own resurrection, our own bodily resurrection in the new heaven and the new earth. So glorification really is the culmination of our saving grace. It's, it's, it's the culmination of the process of sanctification through which we become like Christ. And as we journey through this life, we say, Lord, I don't want to have this sin in my life. Remove it from my life. But glorification is the time when all of your sin will be removed forever. No more. Right? Will it be in your life? And this doctrine is spoken about in the New Testament in many ways in various places. Now... What I'm going to do over the next three weeks is get all morbid. I'm going to use the doctrine of glorification, and I'm going to use it as a springboard for these next three sermons. So I'm going to take things a little further in this teaching series, and I'm going to talk about afterlife. Afterlife. I think... One of the most important things that we can learn here on earth is how to get to heaven. This life is all about preparation for the next life. And heaven, listen to me, heaven is not so much a reward for how we live our life now as it is a consequence. Right? Heaven is a consequence of the way you are living your life right now. In other words, it's not so much about how you can get into heaven. I've said this over the last few weeks. Um, the teaching of the New Testament is not about how you can be admitted to heaven. Too many Christians think, well, I've prayed that prayer, I've given my life to Jesus, and now I'm on my way to heaven. That's not the teaching of the, of the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament is about how to become the kind of human who can actually live there. That's the teaching of the New Testament. It is the result of following the way of salvation, following after Jesus, persevering in this life so that ultimately we arrive at our intended destination. And so the Christian life is one of gaining clearer and clearer vision of God. As we grow in our relationship with Jesus and as we grow in our relationship with others, right, the members of the body, the church, as we grow in relationship together, because we don't do this on our own. Again, too many Christians are out there and going, well, I don't need the church. I'm a lone ranger. Yeehaw! I'm a good godly person and I'm on my horse and I'm going to do my own thing. And, I, and I'll go to church when I think I might want to go to church. No, you've got the wrong idea. 
We are saved for community. <laughs> right? We are saved to be part of the body of Christ. And that's why we journey with one another. Learning to love one another. Standing for each other. Doing this life together. Becoming so friendly with one another that we can actually confess our sins to somebody. Wonderful. So we begin to, to learn to see God in this life. We begin to experience a foretaste of the kingdom of God. I was thinking, like, how do you explain this? How do you explain this in a way so that people can, can, can get it? And I thought, well, you know, it's like we are born into a broken world, aren't we? We are bro- born into a broken, confused, messed up world. And, and, and so it's like, it's like being bored, born with bad vision. You can't quite see clearly. You've got, you got bad vision. And so without Jesus in our life, we cannot clearly see the way things are. But then we hear a message and we say, well, I'm going to make this decision to believe. I'm going to exercise my faith and believe. And so when we become Christians, it's like we're given glasses. <gasps> wow, I can see those in the back row. Welcome to church today. If I take my glasses off, you're all hazy. Maybe I should just preach this way and then not worry about the faces looking at me. But now I can see you clearly. And so as a Christian, we can see things as they are. The problem, though, as Christians, we have these glasses and we can see clearly. But the problem as we journey through life is we keep getting the lenses dirty, don't we? And so we keep getting our, we got to keep getting the lenses cleaned. Because if the lenses are not cleaned, I'm not going to see clearly. And so that's how we get off the way. And so that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is like our, our lens cleaner. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's cleaning our lenses again and again and again so that we can see clearly. And so if you live a life of desiring God, desiring more of God, and allowing Jesus to give you vision, if you live that kind of life, it will prepare you for a day when your vision is ultimately going to be completely restored. Right? That's, that's the teaching. When, when we die we'll finally be able to see God clearly. The scripture says we will see him as he is. And so we're not going to have any need for glasses anymore, right? Because we will see him as he is. And we're either going to rejoice when we finally see him clearly, if that's what we've been doing in this life, seeking after him, and and I no longer need these glasses, I'm going to rejoice. I'm in the presence of God. You're either going to rejoice or you're going to get before God and you're going to go, oh, I've got such pain in my eyes. Because the light is so bright. And it's painful for you because you've been in darkness your whole life long. So when we die um, in, th- in this life, we're going to have a vision of God. Because we've been journeying with God. And, and we'll see God as he is because we're going to come before the throne of God. But when we die and we go to heaven... Um, there's this little issue. Our souls will not have yet been reunited with our bodies. So we will not be fully ourselves. We will not experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. We will not know exactly what the kingdom of God is all going to be about. Because when we die, our experience is going to be that of heaven or, or paradise. And heaven or paradise is just an appetizer. It's an appetizer for what's to come next. The best is yet to come, so to speak. Are you all with me? Craig, I'm good. Awesome. So, 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 so I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to have to track with me this morning. 
you are definitely going to have to listen. Otherwise, it's not going to be very helpful to you. But my prayer is that it's going to be helpful to you. So let's just quickly pray that. Father, would you come in the power of your spirit and work in each heart this morning? Open up our minds and open up our understanding, Lord. Take out that which we've learnt and taken a hold of which is not correct and replace it with truth. And Father, may we dig deeper and explore more. Explore more of your story concerning us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so what I want to do is I want to go right back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, a little Hebrew word um, appears, and the Hebrew word is nefesh, nefesh, nefesh. It's translated as, in the English, as soul, soul. In Genesis 2.7, this is what we read about the creation of Adam, the creation of, of humankind. The scripture tells us that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living soul. So what you have here is a body, right, of mud and dirt, a body made of dust. And breath is breathed into his nostrils and he becomes a living soul. Nefesh chaya, a living soul. God breathes. The word for breath is spirit. God who is spirit breathes the soul into the body. The soul is the life of a living being. The soul is the life of a living being. So what's being conveyed here in Genesis 2.7 is that once the breath of life is breathed into this body made of dirt, it becomes alive. It becomes animated. The soul becomes embodied and it becomes alive. Adam becomes alive. And so in this message this morning, I'm going to be talking about that life. I'm going to be talking about the life. Your soul, my soul. Now you can't separate the two out, right? You can't quantify that. Uh, in fact, in the late 19th and early 20th century, some medical folk tried to actually, they wanted to see whether the soul had any weight. So they actually took, they actually did this. They took people who were dying and weighed them at the point of death to see that after, what, if the weight would change after they died, to see if the soul had any weight. They, go Google it. It actually happened. Now, that, so, Nothing happened, no change, <laughs> because it's not, not something you can separate out. It's not something that you can section off in a scientific way. But at the same time, if you've ever watched a person die, which in our modern society I know a lot of people have never actually experienced themselves, but if you ever have, you will know that there is a palpable difference between the moment before and the moment after. I. Uh, I once sat <clears throat> with a, a guy, sat down for a conversation, and we were talking, having a conversation, and then he died right in front of me. He, he died. And I, I could see a change had taken place. I was going, sit, sit. A change had taken place. A moment ago, he's, there was life there. And then the life had gone. And so when I'm talking about a soul here, I'm, I'm talking about the life of a person. Now, I know that the words soul and spirit are sometimes distinguished here. Um, some describe humans as being body and soul. Some describe humans as being body, soul, and spirit. 
Um, and there's a lot of argument to, you know, as to who's right about that. And there are explanations for that. But I don't want us to miss the point on this this morning. The truth about human beings is that we are psychosomatic. We are a union of body and soul or body and spirit. We were created as a psychosomatic whole. The Bible clearly teaches that we were intended to experience intimate relationship with God, deep communion with God. And so God created us as a unity of both material and immaterial aspects, physical and spiritual, embodied souls uniquely made in the image and likeness of our Creator, creator God. We are created to have a unique connection with God. And so human beings are different to all other living beings. There's something very unique about us. Our soul is a unique type of soul. It's different to every other being in creation. Adam became a living soul. So I'm using the word soul as that thing which is different in a living body to that of a dead body. The life. The soul. Okay? So I have a soul. You have a soul. It's your life. It's, it's who we are. It's who we are. So. You with me? All right. Now, what's the deal with death? What's the deal with death? Where does death come from? What is it? Well, death is a dissolution of this, of this union. It is a separation of the body and soul. Our bodies are, are made up of different parts, different elements. That's why after the moment of death, the body begins to decay and dissolve into its elements, and, and it returns to the earth from which it was taken. Either you get buried in the ground or you get cremated and somebody will spread those ashes somewhere and you go back to the earth. The soul, though, is not made up of parts. And so the soul doesn't suffer the decay that the body does. The soul remains intact even after death. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, God says this in Genesis 3.22. He says, he says, uh, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The implication, now we're talking about death here, right? The implication is that human beings were made mortal, but with the potential for immortality. If they had access to the tree of life, if they had access to the tree of life, they would have eternal life. They could go on living. So immortality is not an inherent thing. It was conditional. It was conditional on getting life from the source of life. The apocryphal book, the wisdom of Solomon, you, you might not be in your Bible, it's in my Bible. The wisdom of Solomon, chapter 1, says this, God did not make death. And he does not delight in the death of the living. For he created all things so that they might exist. And it goes on and it says, For righteousness is immortal, but the ungodly by their words and deeds summoned death. We were not made for death. We have brought death upon ourselves because of sin. That's what humans have done. Humans turned away from God. We turned away from the source of life. The source of life is God. 
And God did not make us naturally mortal or naturally immortal. God gave us the choice to choose mortality or immortality. As we know the story, we see what happened with humanity. Humanity chose death through sin. And that's why God allows sin to continue because evil then has to come to an end. When someone dies, an evil person who dies, it means that, the, that, that that evil in their life will not exist forever. Now remember, humanity is formed in the image of God. Humanity was created to have relationship with God and to continue the creative work of God. We, we, we were actually, we, we're intercessors. <laughs> we transition heaven and, and earth. We were given dominion over the earth. So we were commissioned to cr continue the creative work of God. God wanted humanity to take his good creation and put it in order and fill it with life. Right? That includes all living things in creation, animals and plants. We, we are supposed to put them in order. We as human beings are supposed to foster life. The Garden of Eden is the perfect image of this. It was a garden in good order. right? And the good order in that garden did not produce death. It did not produce sterility. The good order in that garden um, produced life. It, it allowed that garden to flourish. So when humanity was created and was sent into the world originally, God wanted us to turn the world into a garden, into a paradise. And, and part of that included the humanizing of, of, of parts of the world, like the inhuman parts of the world would be humanized by us putting them in order, by filling the earth with life, plants being cultivated by humans, animals being domesticated by humans. I mean, just think about your, your dog or your cat. They've, they've been humanized through human intervention. Right? Humans have changed them and transformed them in ways that we would say, well, that, that's positive, right? Right? I, mean, I struggle with the positive side of cats. I, 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 but anyway, that's for another day. So, so ideally, creation finds its fullest connection to God through humanity. Creation finds its fulfillment through humanity. And humanity finds its fulfillment in the humanity of Jesus. But this also means that when human beings turned to sin and evil, as Adam found out, remember what God said to him, cursed is the ground because of you. Our sin also has an effect on the rest of creation. It has the opposite effect. Instead of bringing order, it brings disorder. Instead of bringing life, it brings sterility and death. That's the effect that we have on the rest of creation because we form creation after ourselves. And if we're disconnected from God, that means the rest of creation is also going to be disconnected from God ultimately when we get done with what we're doing. We were created for communion with God, created for life. Sin and evil which causes death, was not in our nature. But through our disobedience, humanity turned away from God. We turned away from the source of life. So death became our destiny. Because our nature got corrupted. And because we were no longer in direct communion with the source of life. Death is an automatic result 
of separation from God. And it's sin that causes that separation. Death and sin are, are co-supporting. They, they, they are interacting. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin is the source and it's the nature of death. And for one to be conquered, one has to be overcome. That's why the only sinless one, Jesus Christ, was able to conquer death and able to liberate us from its bondage. Making reconciliation with God possible once more. Making communion with God possible once more. Making immortality, life eternal, possible once more. Death was the enemy of God. That's what we read in the Bible. Death was the enemy of God and the enemy of us. And Satan uses death to increase and perpetuate and to perpetuate separation from God. And so if you are in the hands of death, you are out of the hands of God. Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul. The soul leaves the body. The life departs from the body. But spiritual death, which is way, way worse, is the separation of the soul from God. The good news for us is that we know that God has not abandoned us, right? We, we know that he's not abandoned us to sin and death. He's given us the possibility of restoration and, and reconciliation and eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. So now we've spoken about a soul and we've spoken about where death comes from. Are you with me, Lena? Now we're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about life. What's the deal with life? Because I've been talking about life, but pretty much in negative terms. You know? <laughs> that's what happens when you die. But, but that's negative, not positive. So, so what about life? Well, John actually gives us a handy definition of life in John 17, 3. And actually, this is a prayer Jesus was praying. This is life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's our definition of life. God's idea of life is life forever. That's life, in God's view, life forever. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that's our definition of life. Life is knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. And you come to the Father by coming to know Jesus Christ. That's what life is. And what Jesus is saying here in John's Gospel is that there is a connection between physical life and spiritual life. So in, in, a, in a physical life, the connection here is the union of the soul and body. That's what it means to be truly human. Just to have that soul um, and the body connected together. We read that in Genesis 2-7. That's where we started out. That's physical life. The spiritual life is the connection of the soul to God. Now remember, we, we're created as psychosomatic, we are created as a psychosomatic whole. So it's body and soul, physical and spiritual. So the separation of the soul from God is spiritual death. That's, that's, that's real death. And physical death is the result. It's the inevitable result of spiritual death. So if spiritual life is the connection of the soul with God, then what we see with God breathing into Adam and him becoming a living soul, what we're seeing there is Adam becoming alive and being connected with God 
all at the same time. And so if the soul of a living being is the life of the living being, then the soul represents the connection to God of a living being through which physical, biological life occurs. Which means that everything that is alive, everything that is living is connected to God. Is connected to God. That's why we see what we see about blood in, in the Bible. When you read Genesis chapter 9, I don't know if you've ever read it, when the flood comes to an end and you see uh, Noah and his wife and his sons and, and their wives kind of come off the ark. And what does God do? What does God give them permission to do? He gives them permission to eat T-bone steaks. He gives them permission to eat animals. That's what God does. He says, you can kill and you can eat animals. But immediately God also says, you just can't eat the blood or drink the blood. Because the blood of the thing is the life of the thing, and that life belongs to God. So you can't consume it. You've got to pour it out. You've got to return it to God. If you read in Leviticus, you find that when they, when, they, when, they brought, when they did the sacrifices, the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. You can't consume it because that is the life. And at the same time, he says, <laughs> it's quite interesting, that this applies in a unique and special way to human blood. Because humanity is made in the image of God, and because humanity is made in the image of God, God is going to demand an account for every drop of human blood that's ever been spilt. And he goes on to actually say that not only from every person where blood, uh, um, a person has caused human blood to be spilt, but God actually goes further and he says even an animal that spills human blood, he's going to demand an account. It's, it's quite, can you imagine? <laughs> when the lion comes before God, he's going to have to answer to God for the fact if he spilled the blood of a human being. It's quite, that's what the text says, literally. So the scripture is really trying to underscore how important and how serious life is to God. Life now and life beyond this life is so important to God. The Old Testament and the New Testament teach us that God is the giver of life, that he is the sustainer of life. Your life, my life, the lives of the people that we know, the lives of the people that we don't know, are extremely important to God. And he does not want one to perish, does not want one to die. That's why he became flesh and entered into the human story in the person of Jesus to make a way to save us, a way for our souls to be connected to God in order for us to have life, life without end. Okay. I told you it's gonna, you're going to have to track with me. I told you this morning. Some of you I can see you going, hey, I'm going to have to listen to that again. Okay, so we've spoken about the soul. We've spoken about where death comes from. We've spoken about life, God's view of life. So if a bus had to come running through that door, I mean like really at high speed, and knock me down and I died here today, and my body gives up my soul, what then? What does the Bible say about life after death? Well, it's quite interesting. The Bible actually speaks mostly about um, the future resurrection of the dead. It doesn't talk too much about exactly what happens when you die now and, and your soul you know, goes after physical death. It focuses more on the reunification of the body and the soul at the resurrection. But Scripture is not completely silent. If you've ever read in Luke chapter 16, the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, 
Jesus gives us some insights. Now, I'm not going to read through the whole parable. We don't have time. But I want to pull out some key points. One of the first things that we see in this parable is that the soul remains conscious and retains its personhood. The bus hits me. Lifeless. Nothing happening. Was there. Now is not there. Just the body. Right? The life's left me. It's gone. What this is saying here is that even though it's gone from my body, it's still, it's still me. I'm probably, I'm maybe up there. What's going on down there? I'm Andrew. The thing that encompasses my soul is lying there, the body, but I'm, I'm aware, I'm conscious, and I retain my personhood. I know who I am. I don't become Craig. I don't become Angela. I'm Andrew. I know who I am. That's the first thing we take from the story. The second thing that we take from the story is that the soul of the righteous is escorted by angels. So let me tell you something. When my soul comes out of here, the angel that you couldn't see standing right here, a whole host of them, said, Andrew, come with me. That's what we see in the story. The soul of the righteous is escorted by angels, and it experiences a state of comfort. That's what it means, the bosom of Abraham. I go to a state of bliss, a state of comfort, a state of happiness. And then it says that the soul of an unrighteous person goes to experience torment which is described as Hades. Remember, Jesus is telling the story. And then lastly, the soul remembers its life on earth and it retains attachments to life, to loved ones. These are what we take out of this parable. Now, I've said that a person is a psychosomatic being. So the soul without the body is not a whole person, nor is the body without the soul a whole person. But the soul is the life of a person. The life causes life. The life animates. Right? That's what got me back up off the ground because I have life. Life animates. It, 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 it causes life. But if the soul le- leaves, the soul continues to be alive when the person dies. And because it's alive, it perceives. Now let me go to another apocryphal book, which is probably not in your Bibles, but it's in mine. Second Esdras. It has some really interesting things. You should actually go read it sometime. It has some really interesting things to say about the life to come, and it also speaks about the end times. Uh, But it has this to say about life after death. And in fact, let me just also say, (laughs) I don't want to weird anybody out here this morning. You're probably all Protestants, and you're probably thinking, well, that's not part of the Bible. How can he not speak from Scripture? Well, I understand that it doesn't form part of the Protestant canon of Scripture, but it is worth reading because much of the Apocrypha still lines up with the scriptures as we know them, the 66 books as we know them. And I'm sure that you've read other Christian books and you've said, oh, that's interesting. I've learned from that. Certainly I have. Anybody ever read a Christian book? That's what we're doing over here. We're reading another Christian book, Second Ezra's. So don't, I don't, want, don't get weirded out here this morning. Right, okay. So it says, concerning death, the teaching is, as the Spirit leaves the body to return again to him who gave it, first of all, it's going to adore the glory of the Most High. If it is, but if it's one of those who have shown scorn, and have not kept the way of the Most High, who have despised His law and hated those who fear God, such spirits shall not enter the habitations, but shall immediately wander about in torments, always grieving and sad. So I think we can be reasonably assured that when a person dies, they're going to enter into the presence of God if they love Him. If they know Jesus, they are going to enter into the presence of God. 
And that very often is described as a, a state of restful happiness. Very often after someone dies, people will go, R.I.P., rest in peace. But you're aware. It's not a state of unconsciousness. The soul knows what's going on. The soul can perceive what's going on because the soul is you. I think if the Apostle Paul had thought that you're going to fall asleep or that you're going to go into a state of unconsciousness, he would never have described life after death. Um, he, he, immediately after death, he would never have described it as being far better. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.23. He's had so much of the Philippian church, he just says, my desire is to be depart and be with Christ. Before this, he says, like, you guys are just giving me such a toothache. Uh, doesn't say that, I'm paraphrasing. But um, he says, I'll stay for your sake. But he says, for me to be with Christ, I'd rather be there, for that is far better. So this state, after we die and our soul goes, is an intermediate state. Because very clearly, it is not the final destination for Christians. The final destination for Christians is bodily resurrection. That is a state of being firmly, where we go now, is a state of being firmly held in the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of God. And we often call that heaven. We call that heaven, heaven. But very often in the scripture, it's described as, it's called paradise. Paradise. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now for those who've resisted God in this life, for those who've chosen not to believe, the very same experience is described as torment. And we often use the word hell to describe this. There's torment. Torment from the evils that people clung to in this life. Torment from the desires that they served in this life instead of serving the living God. Torments from evil spirits in their life after rejecting the Holy Spirit in their life. And so it seems from Scripture that, that the unrighteous somehow still in that eternal state still reject the love of God. Thinking that they belong where they are. Which is why they're not with the righteous. Those who believe and those who gave their lives to Christ in this life. That, that seems to be the picture that we have from Scripture. And I think that's why in this life we often ask the question, if when we die and we enter into this reality, is it too late to repent? Is it all over? Is, for those who are fixed in their unrighteous state, are they, are they completely lost? How does that all work? Can we change our mind after our earthly life is over? How do we relate to all of that? I think, I think the simplest answer here this morning is that death is the final test. Death is the marker. Death is the Christian marker. You prove your whole life by how you die. How we die proves everything. Did I make a choice to believe in Jesus by faith, and did I live for him, or didn't I? And folks, that's why I think the gospel message is actually quite a dangerous message. Because it requires a response. And, and I think the test is, what was your response? And death is the moment of truth. Now, we don't believe like Buddhists believe in, in post-death kind of post uh, uh, conversions or, or eons of life. And neither do we believe like some Christians believe in the Roman Catholic Church. We don't believe in purgatory either, right? Purgatory is a place where you go to receive punishment in order to purge you from your sins. Right? 
It was those practices that actually started the Protestant Reformation where people were going, this is not right. And it's true. The te that teaching is not biblical. Remember, the soul is the life of a person. It is who you are. So when you die, you enter the presence of love. But if you've resisted that love in this life, it becomes a torture to you. Now, please listen to me. God is not a punisher. God is not a punisher. The punishment comes from our own evil. The punishment comes from our rejecting the love of God. When the love of God is on us, we've rejected it. God does not punish us. God does not torture us. And what we can rest in this morning is that God is the perfect judge. He alone is the one who judges. He knows all things. In his perfect love and mercy, I know that God doesn't want not a single soul to perish. That's what I read in John 3.16. He would have that not one would die, but that all would come to eternal life. The thing is, in, in some way, many who die and who have rejected him in this life are still going to reject him in that life. They're going to be there and they're still going to reject him. That's the wrath of God. Where God has gone, I love you so much, I'll give you over to your desires and passions. I think something worth noting here, though, is this, as believers here this morning. We actually read the Apostles' Creed a few moments ago. Remember, you stood up and we recited it together. Some of the words in that creed were, we believe in the communion of saints. You know what that's about? We believe in the communion of saints. You should never just recite anything if you don't know what it means. You should stop on that line. Well, I don't know what that means. We recited it. We believe in the communion of saints. What that means is that we, as well as those who've already departed, we are all in Christ. We are all in Christ. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ. Although they are dead to us in this life, they are alive right now in that life. The, I don't know how many of you know N.T. Wright. He's an amazing scholar and, and an amazing theologian. And he wrote this in his book, Surprised by Hope. He wrote, Glenn, next slide. He said, once we rule out purgatory, Here's what N.T. Wright says. He says, I see no reason why we should not pray for and with, pray for and with the dead and every reason why we should. That's quite a, quite a statement. Not that, they're gonna get, not that they'll get out of purgatory, but that they will be refreshed and filled with God's joy and peace. I know a lot of Christians will disagree with me on this, and I'm not advocating praying to people. I don't see anything in Scripture which says we should pray to people. We have one mediator, Jesus Christ. We pray to Jesus. So we don't pray to people, but I see no problem in praying for them. I see no problem in praying for them. I agree with what N.T. Wright says. Our love for other people very often surpasses into prayer. When we love someone, we begin to pray for them. And we still love those who've left us. Why not hold them in the love of God? Paradise is not just a place, it's a relationship. And I often pray that those who have gone, that God would draw them to him. That those who have responded to his love, that God would draw them into a deeper relationship and awareness of himself. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, if you go re read Revelation chapter 6, you'll find John talking about the souls under the altar 
And the souls under the altar are urging the Father to complete the work of justice and salvation in the world. Go read it in Revelation 6. And so I'm pretty sure that those who we love, out of their love for God, are urging the Father on our behalf. I really do. So, folk, I just want to say this morning as we get into this, that we're still here in the world, and we're still wrestling with this flesh. We're still wrestling with this sinful nature. But I want to tell you that our faith marks us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you've been baptized, you know what baptism is about? It's about dying with Christ. It's about leaving that life behind. It, it, it signifies that you have left behind the old life. You are a new creation. And you are sealed with the creating life of the Holy Spirit. We've died with Christ and we no longer live as part of this world. That's what baptism signifies. We say, I'm rejecting the ways of this world. I'm living for Jesus. And I'm now going to travel as a new creation in him. And so as I go through this world, I'm just a sojourner. I'm traveling through, man. This world is not my home. My home is still to come. So I'm not going to get caught up in all the stuff of this place because my focus is on Jesus. And we are fellow citizens with every Christian who's already gone on before us. With every saint, we eat and drink at the table of the kingdom. When we take communion, it's not only that we remember life in Christ, but we know that those who've gone, who believed, who loved, are still are with him. But we also know that a day is coming when we will be raised and glorified. We will be resurrected in a new creation. Death is the enemy of the body and the soul, but Jesus raises up the body and the soul. And that's why we have hope, because Jesus rose again on that third day. He conquered death. Death could not hold him. And so in this life, we don't just live for God to make us healthy, wealthy, and happy. We don't just go, God, look at me. Can I have that? Can I have this? I need that. Can you do this for me? That's not, that's not the point of a Christian life, for God to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. We live this life where we pick up our cross, like Jesus said, I'm picking it up, and I'm going to walk for you. I'm going to live for you. My eyes are going to be on you. And as we do that, we trample down death by our faith and our grace through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so what we do in this life is we already start to die. I could ask you this morning, have you died yet? We start to die to ourselves. We start to die to the things of this world. We die because of our hope, which is to enter into the glory of that Jesus already has at the right hand of the Father. The life that is to come in Him forever. We die to the things of this world as we look to that. We believe that because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human life and died and was raised again, so too will we. Because of that, everyone who, is, who, who dies will be raised. And everyone has that opportunity to be at the right hand of the Father in Christ. We just recited that in the Apostles' Creed. The problem is that not everybody likes that and not everybody wants it and not everybody believes it. And even some people who are convinced that it's true, they still don't want it. So actually we can say that in Jesus, everyone is raised from the dead, everyone's sins are forgiven, everyone is saved, whether they want it or not, whether they like it or not, or whether they know it or not. But if you want it and you like it and you know it, then that for you will be paradise and joy. But if you don't, it'll be hell. So hell and paradise, 
begin when we die.